I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. Before we begin, I just want to note that some of our listeners may find the content of what we are discussing today distressing, so be sure to check in with yourselves or check out the further resources offered and linked in the show's show notes. Hi, everybody. Um, we're very excited to welcome here today members um, from Glitch. We're here to talk about a new report that they have um, out on digital misogynoir. Um, and I'll turn it over um, to them to introduce themselves. But thank you so much for being here and really excited to dig more into this report. Yeah, thank you so much for hosting us. Um, so my name is Julia Slupska. I'm the head of policy campaigns and research at Glitch means I work on advocacy primarily aimed at tech companies to hold them accountable for online abuse and online safety. I'm Hilary Watson. I'm the Policy and Campaigns Manager at Glitch, so work particularly closely with Julia on the things that she's talked about um, just now and also particularly focusing on um, policy changes with the Online Safety Bill at the moment at Glitch. And I'm Olivia Andrews. I'm the newest member of the team at Glitch. I'm the fundraising and partnerships manager. And I am, clues in the name, looking at our fundraising and partnerships within the organization. And thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited. No, thank you for being here. I'm really excited. Um, So maybe we could just start a little bit with um, a bit of a background about the organization. So what and who is Glitch? Um, How did this organization come about? Uh, and then as well, kind of like, what is the, the story and, and um, the origin of, of, of the report? Sure. So Glitch was started in 2017 by our CEO and founder, um, Shei Yahiwowo. At the time, she was a local politician and she received a slew of online abuse when a video of her speaking at the European Parliament went viral. Um, and she experienced and witnessed the lack of support that women and particularly black women receive when reporting the online abuse and the fact that, and she speaks about this in her book, How to Stay Safe Online, a little bit of a plug, um, about the fact that a lot of the way that she was trying to look for support, if she was looking for support as a woman, it didn't acknowledge her race. And if she was looking for support from a black standpoint, it didn't acknowledge her womanhood. And so this motivated her to start Glitch, not just to support women online but to support black women and marginalized communities um, and not just about supporting their safety online but also creating spaces for joy so glitch has been running as an organization since then um, and we are an award-winning charity um, we're committed to ending online abuse um, by educating people on how we can engage positively 
and respectively, respectfully in all digital spaces. The vision at Glitch is one where systemic change actually happens, where tech companies not only understand their accountability, but take an active stand in preventing, not just reacting to online abuse. Our mission is to empower people to advocate for others, especially advocate for those in marginalized communities like black women. Through our research and reports, like the Digital Misogyny Report, toolkits and guides, workshops that we deliver and training, we want to activate a generation of digital citizens who are empowered to not only demand tech accountability, but act safely and joyously online. And I will hand over to Julia for a bit of the story of how the report came about. Uh, thank you. So I guess to uh, to give context specifically on the report, so it's called the Digital Massage Noir Report. And Massage Noir is a term that was uh, coined by Dr. Moya Bailey and popularized by Moya Bailey and, and Trudy, aka The Treads Online. Um, and it's a term that's used to acknowledge the way that Black women are uniquely discriminated against because of their gender and their race. Um, and it is expressed in a variety of ways. Uh, there's tropes that are traditionally associated with it that have been criticized in Black feminist theory for decades, um, but often involves dehumanization, silencing Black women, silencing their perspectives. And specifically, digital massage noir, which is what we look at in the report, is um, the continued dehumanization of Black women on social media. There's other forms like algorithmic discrimination that we didn't focus on as much. But Black women have been raising the alarm on digital massage noir for decades, uh, highlighting how dangerous it is both to people who experience it online and also because of the ways it motivates um, offline kind of white supremacist violence. But despite that, the majority of online safety research and policy continues to ignore it. And it's difficult to find research that uh, focuses not just on race and gender, but the intersections of them. Um, and as a result of that, there is this dynamic where people um, who experience massage noir, so Black women, um, ha have to continue to retell their stories. And uh, often those stories aren't taken seriously. So we wanted to create research that documents the prevalence of misogynoir online, maps the nature of it. Um, and, and that's what the report does. Fantastic. So you, you talked a little bit, I know, about in the introduction to Glitch. So I wondered if um, in this report and kind of in research more in general, um, why is it really important to center race and gender while thinking about online harms? Um, and, and intersectionality kind of more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think um, just in, in case people aren't aware, um, intersectionality is a theoretical framework for understanding how multiple social identities, so things like race, gender, sexual orientation, uh, disability, will intersect at the level of individual experiences and then reflect these broader interlocking systems of privilege uh, at a macro level. Um, and it's it's been introduced and discussed as far back as uh, the 19th century by people like Anna Julia Cooper, but it was popularized in the 70s by American scholar, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and it's incredibly important because if 
you look at online abuse and online safety through this kind of one size fits all lens, treating everybody as if their experiences are important, you miss a lot of how differently impacted people are um, and how abuse that is specifically targeted at an identity that's also marginalized by like broader systems in society is going to be more harmful and is going to just be different than abuse that's like generic. Um, and the responses likewise need to be different and need to take that into account. So I wonder, so for this report, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the details. So what exactly, what, what exact platforms um, were the report looking at more broadly, um, you know, specifically Twitter or Reddit, which is the ones we think about, or just the online overall, and then maybe about what were the harms that were documented and kind of the impact of the existence of this toxicity um, for Black women and how they, you know, how is it, how is it affecting Black women and participating in online forums? Um, how does this lead kind of to um, online or uh, real world, air quotes, violence, um, or even kind of the radicalization of, of white supremacists? Yeah, thank you for, for asking that. So in the research, we analyze the prevalence of the nature of uh, hate against black women across five different social media platforms. So three of those were mainstream platforms, Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, now called X, and then two uh, smaller high harm platforms, um, Gab and 4chan. So for those who don't know, those are altern alternative platforms. They're high harm platforms that are known as havens for alt-right and white supremacist sort of discussions. So um, we worked um, with the support of an AI company called TextGain and, and looked at um, the, the uh, prevalence of uh, misogynoiristic and misogynoir generally across these platforms. So we looked at uh, almost a million posts um, that were in conversation about women on these platforms and found uh, that misogynoir and misogyny more generally, were very prevalent across all five of these platforms. So both those mainstream platforms and also these high harm smaller platforms. Uh, we found that uh, twenty percent of the content that we were looking at was highly toxic, uh, which amounts to over a thousand highly toxic posts a day. So that was sort of one of our key findings. And the other sort of two that I'll highlight as well were about uh, the hateful tropes. Um, which Julia mentioned earlier. So hateful tropes continue to be used to silence and harm black women. So that's where we see the uh, online and offline sort of effects of this sorts of this sort of um, harmful content and this abuse. Uh, but what we also found on the kind of flip side of that is that social media is used by and for black women to challenge abuse and to build community. So that's something that we saw particularly when looking um, at content based on black women but we didn't find in a, a more sort of broader kind of data set looking at white women for example or, or women in general um, and then the third finding as well uh, that we found was that misogynoir underpins hateful narratives like white supremacy anti-semitism and great replacement theories uh, we found that on the mainstream kind of social media platforms so instagram uh, twitter and um, facebook 
we were looking more at the sort of dehumanizing language and um, stereotyping, body shaming, the over-sexualization of black women. And in contrast, on the alternative platforms, we were seeing more white supremacy and anti-Semitic themes. Um, in terms of, of what Judy was mentioning earlier, um, with, with harmful tropes uh, used to silence and harm black women, um, we've seen the dehumanizing language and stereotyping long critiqued within black feminist scholarship so um uh, black feminist theorists like dr patricia hill collins bell hooks and dr melissa harris perry have shown these tropes or these controlling images as an attempt to delimit the potential ways of being a black woman in the world um and then again with uh, dr moya bailey who we center uh, a lot in this in this research um she brings out uh, certain uh, stereotypes that she talks about in, in her book, uh, Misogyny Noir Transformed, uh, which looks at black women's digital resilience, which, again, we see mirrors in the findings of our research. So, for example, the prevalence of uh, the angry black woman, the uh, promiscuous, highly sexualized stereotype of the Jezebel, uh, the fat phobia that comes through the sort of mammy trope, um, and uh, in terms of what we saw as the most prevalent trope, it was was this sort of angry black woman and often this angry fat black woman. So you have this extremely harmful and often fat phobic trope, uh, which often leads to both the dismissal and tone policing of black women's voices in public discourse, whether that's online or offline. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things you discuss, um, going kind of back to that intersectionality, Part is um, how how these identities intersect um, and talking about uh, black women, but not only just um, that, but also queer black women as well, and how this um, relates to the tropes that you were just talking about. So I wonder if you could discuss more about um, how like the myths of white womanhood and like kind of the the fat phobia and ableism as well, and conforming to this like white cis het woman image is motivated or reflected in a lot of the online toxicity towards black women online and kind of how, how this manifests. Yeah, absolutely. So as Hilary said, we draw a lot on Dr. Moyle Bailey's book, Misogynoir Transformed, uh, which is really excellent and I would recommend. Um, and one thing that she does, which I think is really interesting is she challenges her readers to think of black women first when you see the word woman and to think of queer and trans women first when you read the term black woman. And that's a call that we kind of adopt and repeat in the report as well. And I think what that does is really interesting because it subverts the dominant way of tending to equate womanhood with white womanhood. So this is something we saw in the data in the sense that a lot of times when people just say women, they're not thinking actively and not centering black women. Uh, black women were more, more, much more likely to be discussed in terms of their race in the data set than white women were. Um, and I think a lot of racist and sexist abuse will sort of draw on an implicit understanding of white womanhood as a default and specifically kind of white cis uh, middle class womanhood. And so when people deviate from that, they receive slurs and they receive toxicity and all sorts of different kinds of abuse. Um, and this is something that Valencia Adarqua Afari has written about, 
where black women experience very specific beauty standards, which are often based on uh, Eurocentric, Eurocentric beauty norms. And if you don't fit within that standard, you're denied femininity and you're just denied respect. So a lot of the abuse that we saw was fat phobic. It would rely on tropes of, of black women as masculine. In, and that's, I think, also particularly harmful for black trans women, which are denied their femininity and their womanhood in this way. Um, so I think when Moya Bailey calls on people to center black women when they talk about black women and to try to read the text in that way, um, I think that's a really interesting move and really important uh, to think about in these spaces, to, to think about, yeah, inclusivity in that kind of quite radical way. So one of the things you 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 mentioned and you talk about in the report is the difficulty of actually finding funding to do the report um, and for doing this this research, this sort of research more broadly. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about some of the barriers you faced and how these reflect some of the wider systemic barriers um, to researching and addressing harms against Black women as well. Yeah, so I mean, Glitch kind of since its inception has navigated being at that really interesting intersection of racial justice, gender justice, and kind of as we can come out of the summer of 2020, which is a time of like real reflection and realization for a lot of funding bodies, there have been more calls for support for Black-led organizations. However, we tend to find ourselves at a really difficult stage of being too large for those. They focus particularly on grassroots and uh, are usually a lot more sort of um, front-facing work focus, which we're not that type of organisation. And so for a piece of research like this, this research was quite self-funded. We did receive some funding from the EUAI fund, but we also self-funded this research because we knew it was important. And that's why one of our calls to action in the various actors we call upon our call to action for civil society is to fund black women to do research and fund black women who are in research degrees. Our type of research and this type of work is often dismissed as, by funders as too niche. Glitch is often expected to kind of compromise on its unapologetic centering of black women. And uh, this is something that we navigate as an organization and that in itself Dismissing this work as too niche and forcing us to widen our unapologetic focus on black women is a form of institutionalised misogyny in of itself, given the kind of extreme level of risk and abuse that black women face. Um, I mean, right now it is kind of coming towards the end of Black Philanthropy Month and organisations like the Black Feminist Fund and Global Fund for Women have been highlighting how black feminist movements, black social Black social activism and Black research often receives the least amount of funding um, globally. Like um, the Black Feminist Fund found that out of 70 billion US dollars in foundation giving in 2018, less than 0.5% of that went to Black feminist social movements. We know that it, we know at Glitch that it's time for funders to step up and step up to the plate. So that's why it's more important than ever that this research is only seen as the beginning rather than solving the issue. We're calling upon funders to keep investing in organisations like us and other organisations 
and investing in black women who are in research. Yeah, that's so, so important and often something like we kind of miss when when reading reports about like how difficult it is to like have got the funding in, in the first place and, and navigating uh, the different objectives of like your organization and what, and what you want to do as well as um, that of funding bodies and you know institutions more more generally so that was really I was really glad that you had highlighted that in the report as well um I guess so this this report is obviously focused on black women but I know that it mentions throughout um kind of um uh some some things that you found about other races and identity as well so you mentioned asian women and fetishization and in particular you know the toxicity towards interracial couples um as well as sort of how these intersects with intersect with uh, religious identity um so how does the kind of misogynoir um feed into wider issues or relate to other uh issues such as anti-semitism islamophobia and, and kind of great replacement theory mm -hmm. so um yeah, like Olivia was saying, we, we center Black women and the research design was very much um, built around that. So we collected data using keywords related to relating to Black women, to white women for comparison, to women in general. Um, but one thing that I think surprised us is just the sheer amount of different forms of toxicity and abuse that we picked up in, in, in that. And I think it points to how interconnected um, online hate is. Where, like I said, we 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 found a lot of homophobia and transphobia against Black, queer, and trans women. Um, but we also picked up quite a lot of abuse um, that was targeted at white women specifically for being in interracial relationships. Um, and I think one really interesting example of how interconnected different forms of hate are is this conspiracy called Great Replacement Theory. Uh, which is a far-right conspiracy theory which posits that um, people of color are replacing white European populations through higher demographic growth, through immigration. And this theory has been sort of cited in multiple cases of offline violence and shootings against uh, immigrant communities and against racialized people. So it's overtly like incredibly racist in, in what the theory is suggesting and the way it thinks about the world's uh, demographics and so forth. Um, but it's also quite misogynist. A lot of it's really fixated on controlling women's um, re reproduction, uh, who, who women have relationships with, um, and the way that, yeah, and that was visible in the way that the data would often uh have a lot of vitriol against white women in mixed race relationships as like betraying the white race. Um, and these kind of theories are also often uh, kind of covertly anti-Semitic in the way that they'll talk about, for example, replacist elites that again are, are betraying the white race, which is a, a dog whistle for anti-Semitism. Um, so, so there is, these things cannot really be viewed in separation and misogynoir underpins and is connected to a lot of different forms of hate online. Yeah, so I wonder in the research then, did you find a difference across platforms um, about the abuse that's being experienced? Um, so is the, is the problem, you know, the company policies, a lack of will, 
um, or kind of the tech itself? Um, and has any of the companies or a change in their policies or what they're doing on their platforms affected the experience um, of users across platforms, you know, good, good or bad? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think uh, what it, what's worth highlighting here is that we didn't gather uh, equal amounts of data from each of the platforms. So um, the, uh, the most data that we collected was uh, 35% of our data came from Twitter. Um, and um, for example, then uh, Facebook uh, was just 12% of our data. Um, and that, uh, again, with the with the Twitter figure, um, it really highlights that this data was very much of its moment. So, for example, the methods that we used then wouldn't be available to us now in terms of changes to um, to data access to to that particular platform. Um, I think it's also uh, worth mentioning that this was text based um uh, research um, it was very much in the English language so it, there, there are limitations to, to what we we're looking at um, and, and certainly areas for, for further research um, but as, as I mentioned earlier what we were seeing on these sort of mainstream platforms through their text-based um, content was uh, the sort of stereotyping this body shaming this over sexualization and then the uh, the more sort of conspiracy theory kind of um, conversations happening on uh, on 4chan and Gab. What I think is also worth noting is that um, we are seeing a sort of interconnectedness between the platforms. So, for example, um, big platforms may have policies uh, where they remove um, uh, users from those platforms and they go to these smaller uh, small alternative high harm platforms to have these very problematic and very uh, harmful kind of conversations about things like white supremacy, anti-Semitism. But those conversations are coming back to mainstream platforms. Um, of course, you do have very sort of different takes on policy um, across different platforms and you have, um, you know, what's in the public um, domain in terms of what is and isn't permissible on these platforms. Um, I think particularly with these mainstream platforms, they do have uh, policies that you could point towards that should mean that this sort of misogynistic content shouldn't be on their platforms. Um, but uh, with our very limited sort of access um, to to this content, of, of course, platforms have have a much broader access and and. Uh, don't have the same sort of limitations that we found it's worth highlighting just how much um, harmful content we found within those constraints so that again is one of the things that that we find um, particularly worth uh, sort of highlighting to platforms um, in terms of policy changes as well uh, it does need to be constantly monitored um, which of course we try to do as a small advocacy organization and and others do that as well um, these things do change um, uh, with announcements they also change sort of and are tweaked and uh, strategies are changing all the time so for example you might have some big policy changes um, at 10 companies you might have very big strategic changes so for example since this research uh, Meta has released threads um, which of course we haven't looked at at all but um, would be 
perhaps similar to the sort of um, Twitter kind of um, uh, base contents in, in that the, the two platforms are modelled quite similarly on one another. Um, obviously, we've had huge changes in terms of Twitter changing, not only to X, but also changing um, functionalities. So, for example, you've got the announcement from Elon Musk recently about trying to delete the, the block button and, and we, where we are at that. So, yes, it's, it's, it's an ongoing um, area to try and monitor and track kind of how these tech platforms are um, changing their policies, how they are interacting um, with these with these harms and um, with other sort of moving parts as well. Um, but our main message to tech companies is that much more needs to be done to recognise and address misogynoir on social media platforms. Um, and, and as I've said, despite the limitations of our research, which we, we lay out um, as clearly as we can in the report, um, we, we're still finding a huge amount of this this very problematic um, content on on all other platforms, not just these small high harm platforms, but the mainstream platforms. I wonder. So one of the things that the tech companies, and we'll kind of come to more about um, to your call uh, for for tech companies to step in more in a moment. But one of the things they'll they'll kind of say in the media when when these kind of issues come up is they're like, well, it's fine. We're going to build AI detection tools. Like we'll we'll deal with that. Um, and then of course there's been recent reporting, but obviously this it's been known for a really long time that a lot of these AI detection tools are actually like exploited uh, workers either in the U.S. or abroad who are being exposed to really like violent and harmful content for you know often in very exploitative conditions for very little money. So I wonder, um, do, do you do you think that the kind of, um, you know, AI detection or, or is there some sort of technological solution that these these companies um, can take to to address these harms? Or are they kind of more um, systemic and, and broader than that? Yeah, thank you. So I think, yeah, absolutely. As you say, I think there are really um, big issues with the AI systems that are being used for content moderation. So um, I think the, the the systems that companies use are a combination of machine learning algorithms and then human content moderation, which is often exploitative and underpaid and, and traumatic. And I think what's interesting about this research is that in a sense, we were trying to recreate this process um, by... Uh, partnering with a company that does text analytics, that does automated detection, um, and and sort of in that process, seeing a lot of the challenges, like the challenges of automatically detecting counter speech, which is speech that criticizes um, abuse from abuse itself, uh, reappropriating specific words, for example. Um, but I think Existing research has shown, I'm thinking specifically here of Joseph Korteng at Open University, that um, the algorithms that companies use are often particularly bad at detecting misogynoir because they'll be trained on data looking for, on the one hand, racist speech and on the other hand, sexist speech. Within that, there's all sorts of other issues like um, researchers have shown that with Facebook's algorithm in particular for a while, it was... Um, responding much more strongly to cases of quote-unquote racism against white people than, than racism against black people. 
um, or like removing that content more. So there's a lot of problems of inbuilt bias. And I think there's also a lot of work being done on how to build better detection. Like that's something that we, we contributed to with this research and something that others are working on. Because um, I think whether or not you think these tools are, are good, I think for the foreseeable future, companies are going to be relying on automated methods to, um, to, to moderate content just because of the sheer enormous scale of the content. I mean, we would never have been able to read almost a million messages, but almost a million messages is still a very tiny percentage of what's uploaded onto any of these platforms each day. Um, so I think there's different, there's other solutions that we would like to see companies investing more in uh, other than just automated detection. Like I think um, paying content moderators better, but more than that, I think investing more in community moderation and having uh, community responses to this where people are compensated, um, investing in the different ways like online communities will come together in the way that people will be digital citizens and call this out, I think is incredibly important. So the solutions here aren't only going to come from companies, but also from people online. That's something that Glitch works on a lot. Um, but I think companies need to be thinking about this problem on a much more holistic level than just removing toxic content. Um, and I think that's something that we focus on a lot in the calls to action in the report. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to talk about the calls to action next, um, because I really like how you kind of differentiated out different different groups. Um, so I guess we'll talk about the call to action for the tech companies first, and then we'll come to government and to civil, to civil society as well. Um, so I wonder, um, from your perspective, do you think that tech companies are actually motivated to address or change these issues? Um, and I wonder too, is it when you, I kind of think about this a lot in my own research, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword calling on um, tech companies uh, to address it because then you give them the ability, you know, they ha they perhaps have the ability to change it, but then they have the ability to change it back. So I was thinking a lot when Elon Musk changed Twitter's policy on um, uh, trans people and dead naming on the platform, you know, so this was a policy before it was like, oh, you can be banned for that. And then he came in and he got into power and he actually changed it. Um, so it's one of those things because you empowered the company, then you also empower them to do, you know, to do, do the harms themselves. Um, so do you find, you know, more generally Twitter might be a bit of an outlier just because of the politics that are going on. Uh, but do you think most tech companies are motivated to actually address these kinds of issues of hate and toxicity, of racism and gender misogynoir? Um, or do you think they're just kind of quietly okay with it and hoping not to get much bad press? Yeah, I think this is at the crux of Glitch's work as a critical friend of tech companies. Um, and uh, the example that you mentioned about the Twitter's policies um, on trans people and dead naming is... is um, really interesting, um, particularly um, as it's something that was highlighted in the news um, by, uh, spotted by GLAD, who advocate for LGBTQ people. Um, again, just sort of um, emphasising how important it is for 
advocacy groups to keep an eye on tech and, and these sort of moving policies. And, and, and they were certainly accused of trying to change this policy quietly rather than doing it in the open. Um, in terms of our calls to action, we, we talk about um, uh, greater transparency for tech companies, not waiting for whistleblowers to come out with these um, huge amounts of data that, that, that tech companies have about really practically holding tech companies to account about um, regulation and how new laws in different jurisdictions. So, for example, the UK with the Online Safety Bill, the EU with various pieces of legislation, including the Digital Services Act, um, and and the the changing role there and, and tech companies having to sort of comply to that. Um, we sort of highlight the difficulties of direct um, tech influencing and engagement, um, but uh, certainly support... Um, commitments from tech companies to have trust and safety councils. Um, and so, for example, Glitch sat on uh, Twitter's trust and safety council before it was disbanded at the end of 2022. Um, so our relationship, for example, with that tech company has been a sort of very shifting one. But, you know, we do have um, individual connections with uh, with the mainstream sort of tech companies that we do talk about who are and these sort of individuals in these tech companies are, are motivated to make changes. Um, but, um, you know, with with things like the, the removal of the trust and safety council, that mechanism of transparency has been removed as as we've talked about the policies changed quietly so um you know it, it is very tricky to to sort of navigate actually interestingly when we looked at our call to action against what policies are already in companies um x or twitter is the company whose current hate speech policy does include an intersectional understanding of abuse um which um we we found there but not necessarily in, in at other platforms which which you know we were quite um, we thought that was quite notable. Um, uh, and then on the, on the other hand, as, as we've had these conversations with tech companies, the, the mainstream tech companies um, in the report, there are other companies, uh, mainstream companies, who we haven't looked at specifically in this report, uh, particularly because it's tech, tech um, particularly because it's text-based um, research that we're doing, uh, who are interested in, in understanding how to implement um, changes to decrease the the levels of harm in, in terms of misogynistic content, so yeah, it is it is tricky, um, and there are lots of moving parts with with social media companies. Um, certainly, there does seem to be a trend of putting profits over people, um, which is is something that we highlight uh, where we can, and and you know we do call for specific changes but but as i say that we are moving into a sort of different kind of landscape in terms of regulation coming in and tech companies not setting and marking their own homework as they have been doing for a long time so we will see changes and and in the media um at the moment you see that the digital services act in the european union is starting to bite and having an effect on tech companies having to comply with the regulations. So so certainly I think this is a moment of change in terms of that. So I wanted to pick up on one of the things because you, you talk about in the report um, and kind of in your answer as well about uh, the importance of uh, transparency reports and conducting risk assessments. I love that the tech companies not marking their own homework. 
Um, but what, you know, obviously one of the things that you need to access, to, to do that, to have that external um, accountability is access. Um, so again, Twitter is one of these high profile things, um, examples in the news, you know, where previously you could have access to the Twitter um, data, but now, you know, Elon Musk has changed that policy and researchers can't get access, which has really actually impacted um, a lot of my friends who are working on PhDs who were expecting that that data to be there. But, you know, more broadly as well in terms of civil society um, and other research. Um, and Reddit uh, additionally ha- had some controversies research- recently around changing its policies um, towards access. Um, so... Um, I guess what is your, I bet at the other, on the other hand, I wonder, or is to say, what, what, what is kind of, um, your, your take on this? Like, should, should, uh, tech companies be required to release this data? Um, and kind of maybe how would that affect or or change things? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We think companies should be required to release this data and we think they should be releasing it, um, at the moment, I think it is an industry-wide trend that com- companies are clamping down on APIs and clamping down on other tools like CrowdTangle, which is Meta's tool for, for releasing data. Um, and then on the flip side, you have regulation coming in, like Hillary mentioned, like the DSA, which will require um, certain amounts of data access. At the moment, the UK doesn't have that in the online safety bill, which could create a kind of strange dynamic where it might be quite a bit easier to do this kind of research in Europe than the UK going forward, uh, which could disadvantage like researchers in academia, independent researchers in, in the charity sector. Um, but I think that that is quite bad and quite harmful. So I think we these companies have so much data on what goes on on their platforms. And it's really difficult to do research like this, which highlights these issues that they maybe don't want to talk about. Um, if you don't have data access or if that access is prohibitively expensive. Um, So I think it's a really important issue for for governments to be regulating on, but also for companies to be thinking more proactively, Uh, because I think they will look at it purely from a business angle. But I think because of the importance for charities doing research about platforms, but also charities using this data for like, other really important things like disaster relief research, uh, research on um, disinformation and misinformation in elections. Um, So it's something that it's one of our calls to action in the report. And we think it's incredibly important uh, to reverse that trend that's going on in industry. So in terms of your other call to action, which is to kind of states and state governments, um, you call for a public health approach to uh, gender-based violence. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that means and how a public health approach, um, well, what it is and kind of how it differs from, um, say, a carceral approach. Absolutely. We're interested, first and foremost, in ending online abuse and improving the experiences of Black women and increasing access to Black joy online. We don't see a carceral approach as conducive to that. Um, So, for example, we call for a public health approach to ending online abuse, which focuses on promoting good digital citizenship and uh, for this education piece to go beyond just those in formal education, but to drive behavioural change across society. Um, 
So with legislation being developed currently in the UK and the EU and across the world right now, we're seeing, um, as I said, tech companies facing regulation um, for the, sort of the first time. We're also seeing the um, inclusion of um, new um, criminalization of certain very specific types of um of abuse which uh, have been permissible until now so um in the uk for example you have uh cyber flashing um which is the unsolic- unsolicited uh, sending of sexual images uh you have um deep fakes you have down blousing which is taking photos um um down um for example a woman's top and and these are very specific um types of tech enabled abuse uh and it's it's this sort of whack-a-mole kind of approach to criminalizing and um uh causing um this behavior to be to be uh part of the criminal justice sort of response to online abuse without doing any sort of educational behavioral changes which um, we think is actually um, incredibly important in terms of not just trying to uh, keep up keep um, up to date with all of these various emerging uh, forms of abuse because the law will always be a lot slower than uh, the pace of tech which is obviously very quick um, so um, instead um, of uh, going for this sort of criminalization approach we're much more interested in behavioral changes increasing media literacy um, for not just those in formal education but also um, the vast majority of us who have left left formal education so um, having uh, sort of public conversations about uh, how we want to behave online what is permissible and changing behavior uh, rather than criminalizing, we know that criminalization disproportionately impacts racialized communities as well, who are um, by far the, you know, um, who are uh, overrepresented within the criminal justice system and within prison populations. And we don't, you know, we don't want to send black boys to prison. We want to change behaviors and change. Uh, society's understanding of what it is to be a good digital citizen online. So one of the other uh, calls you have um, uh, or things you mentioned in the report is defining things such as incels or white supremacy as extremism. Um, And when I read that, I was shocked that they're not already defined that way, but (laughs) perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised. so I wonder, kind of linking back to, to thinking about the, the public health approach, um, what what do you think would be some kind of like out, outcomes of of um, making this this change? Um, and I wonder, how do you see that link? You kind of talked about it a bit, but how do you see that link between stopping abuse and toxicity and preventing indoctrination and, and extremism? Um, yeah, so I think. I, th- I think what we call for in the report is uh, for white supremacy uh, to be included as a form of extremism in tech company policies. Um, and I think there's a conversation about that. And then there's a conversation about government policies, uh, for example, in the UK in prevent um, n- nominally, I think, white supremacist extremism. I'm not sure about incels, but I think those forms 
are in there, but they're emphasized a lot less heavily um, than um, than Islamic terrorism, which was that a lot of these policies are um, initially kind of designed to to try to prevent and target. And I think there's a really interesting discussion in the anti-carceral space as to whether ultimately what we want is for white supremacists to be included in this so that it's more egalitarian or whether we actually just want to dismantle policies like prevent because of um, how they are target people, how invasive they are, um, how they undermine people's rights and particularly how they're disproportionately used on, on racialized and immigrant communities. Um, but at the same time, I think it is really, I think that's an important conversation to be having, but I think kind of separate to that, um, I think we need to be thinking about how these very extreme forms of white supremacy are becoming acceptable in some spaces on the internet, like Hillary was saying, like Gab and 4chan, and then moving on to mainstream platforms where they reach a much wider audience and kind of keep shifting the bar of what we think of as is acceptable to say. Um, and I think it's really important to think of that in terms of framing it as a question of media literacy so that people are able to like recognize and understand um, when something is racist or sexist or misogynoir, understand what the harms are of it and feel kind of able and empowered to call it out and be active bystanders. Um, and I think the that kind of approach to develop a kind of resilience at a community level, develop a level of um, yeah, ed education around these issues is going to be a lot more effective than criminalizing specific people. Um, and, and that's why that's the approach that we're taking. Um, one of the most exciting proposals, at least from my perspective, that you called for is the tech tax. Um, so I'm wondering, could you maybe talk a little bit more about wh what this is and, and what it would entail? Yeah, thank you so much for your enthusiasm. So um, the tech tax is a polluters pay principle that we see in other industries. So it's about acknowledging the cost and economic terms of online gender-based violence and online harms and ensuring that the platforms themselves are taxed by the governments and that's uh, what kind of funds the solutions. So, uh, for example, in the UK, um, we have an existing tax called the Digital Services Tax. And then uh, the important addition uh, that's not currently in place that we're calling for is that 10% of the revenue that's raised through that tax would be ring-fenced for prevention and supporting uh, survivors of online abuse. So, for example, by funding organisations like Glitch, uh, by funding the tech response in the violence against women and girls specialist sector so that there is um, uh, this sort of sustained funding for this expertise. Um, these uh, sort of services are providing sometimes life-saving interventions um, and we think that that should be funded by the platforms who are creating the problem um, that they can be sustainably funded while this harm continues. Obviously, we're calling for the end of this harm in the long term, but but while these harms continue, we need that support, um, that life-saving intervention to be in place. So 
that's um, that's how we're funding that through through the tech tax. And, and as I've given the example of the UK, there with the digital services tax, that of course can be applied to different taxes in in different jurisdictions and countries as well. Yeah. So I wonder, kind of to wrap up, I wonder um, for our listeners, um, a kind of final question um, is. So how can Black women stay safe online and how can we center their voices? And what resources would you recommend for anyone thinking about how we can cultivate safer digital spaces? Um, So I think a big part of what we focused on in the Digital Misogynoir Report from writing it to our in-person launch day that we all came together for is not just it's not just about staying safe online but also about centering joy and we're really really big on centering joy in these um, spaces creating harmonious happy online spaces so we're really interested to find that black women are creating these spaces we encourage the continuation of that i'd say that read our ceo's book how to stay safe online by shay yakiwowo it is an incredible book that talks not just about her journey through this and her founding glitch, but also provides a really practical toolkit towards the end of the book on how to stay safe online, your your relationship with online and with social media, who's in your network, your digital self-defense and your digital security. I'd say as well that there are some other guides that us at the Glitch team have used as well. The Feminist DIY Guide is a really useful tool and the Tactical Tech Collective's Holistic Security Guide. Um, And then Glitch, we also have our own resources as well. We have our toolkit on our website at glitchcharity.co.uk. We have our toolkit 2.0 and we are going to be updating it to toolkit 3.0 later on this year, which will include some of the the reflections from the Digital Misogynoir Report. Um, But we also have resources on how to be an online active bystander. We have a resource on dealing with digital threats to democracy, which is particularly relevant for women in the public and political eye, um, which is really, really relevant because Amnesty International actually found that uh, Black and Asian women MPs received about 35% more abuse than other groups of MPs. So that resource is really valuable. And as well, we also provide training and workshops. We provide some free trainings. We'll be providing training later this year for Black women and for LGBT communities. Um, But we also provide paid for training and and workshops as well. If you're in an organisation and you want to amp up your digital self-defence and your digital security, we are offering training. Please do get in touch with us. And I guess kind of looking back at the course to action to the communities and the digital citizens from the report is read the report, understand the harmful effects of misogynoir, follow and listen to black women, um, build a community with different people and amplify amplify black women, always practice good digital citizenship and digital self-care. Our toolkits go into how you can practice this. And we all have a part to play in uh, tech accountability and we as digital citizens can demand better from tech companies. You can sign up to Glitch's newsletter on our website and join our upcoming campaigns. We've got some exciting work coming up. And yeah, just keep supporting organisations, keep supporting black women and stay informed.